This is Laura Harris-Hales, and I'm here today with Thomas Wayman to talk about the New Testament, a new translation for Latter-day Saints, a study guide. Thomas A. Wayman is a professor of classics at Brigham Young University. He completed a Ph.D. in New Testament studies at Claremont Graduate University and has published extensively on New Testament topics. He is the author, co-author, or editor of many published articles and several books. And for many years, he was the publications director of the Religious Studies Center at BYU and editor of The Religious Educator. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Tom, how long have you wanted to publish your own translation of the New Testament? I really started the project about 10, 12 years ago when it became apparent here in religion classes that students needed a lot of explanation of the English of the King James Bible. They simply weren't reading the English and making sense of it. So probably the desire was about 12 years ago and the actual work started about five to six. Before we talk about your translation, let's lay some framework and talk about the historical background of the New Testament. Because I think some people are not aware of how complicated it is. Can you walk us through some of that history of how the New Testament came to be? Absolutely. One of the things that's remarkable in having sat down and translated the whole thing is it really brings to the fore things that we talk about, which is that the New Testament contains very different types of writings. There's some things in there that are clearly letters, There are other things that look like letters that aren't really letters, like the book of Hebrews. It doesn't have any type of markers of being a genuine letter. You have books like the Epistle to the Romans, but it's really more of a doctrinal statement. And then you have narrative stories, the Gospels, and you have this thing called the Apocalypse. And and what's interesting about that, why I start there, is that these writings had their own environment in which they were created. A letter written to handle a problem, a letter written to kind of answer a question, or a statement about Paul's view of his own life or his own impending death, and then these stories about Jesus that were gathered. And one was to a community and probably was never intended to be read by others. Others were probably to a whole branch of the church telling the story of Jesus from someone who knew it. And I don't think these authors had any idea that someday we would gather those and really hang on every word they wrote. There's a lot of evidence in the Gospels that they wrote with grammatical errors. They lack verbs. They misconjugate their verbs. They really have a feeling of being written for a time and a place like you and I would dash off an email and we might have a typo or two in it and then later be horrified to find out that people are hanging on every word we wrote. And so that happens organically over a 50 to maybe 70 year period. And I think the later writings have a better sense that there's a body of Christian texts and they're more cognizant of it. They're quoting it, alluding to it, and referring to it. That particularly happens in the Gospels. 
When you think about the New Testament and how it came to be, I think you have to almost imagine taking a hundred and roughly 10-year period, 120-year period in the church, and identifying 27 texts that will define it. And would that be a general conference in 2018? Would that be a letter that President so-and-so wrote? That's how it happened. And we don't even have everything from one year or every type of writing. We have a few letters, a few gospels, and a few other types of writing. I kind of look back with charity on what they were doing. They were trying to grasp onto the words of the apostles and to Christ in the best way they could. But there are some critics who mention there's 5,200 manuscripts that have ties to the New Testament from the ancient world. Just someone in the congregation who maybe wasn't a professional scribe copied it, and there were errors in it. For Latter-day Saints, that may not be such a concern, but in the Protestant world, or maybe even with Christians who for hundreds of years have taken the New Testament as the Word of God, this can be faith-shaking. It can, and especially the way a lot of it's presented today. There are 5,300 manuscripts, give or take, in Greek that contain parts of the New Testament. Some of them are complete. Some of them are the size of a postage stamp. Uh, We add on over 10,000 Latin ones. We add on Syriac. We add on Coptic, all of these other languages. And we start approaching 20,000-plus manuscripts. No two of them are the same. And that narrative is used a lot of times to discredit the quality of the New Testament. And that's fair, but I think from my background, having done this for a long time, roughly 50% of the verses in the New Testament are almost perfectly static. Greek might use one type of and or another type of and, and that's the only real difference. It might have a definite article, the, where another manuscript doesn't have the definite article, the. And what I mean to say by that, when we talk about all these variants, a lot of the New Testament is really secure. And then we start seeing scribes who omit things by error, visual error, they misspell things, and those become variants. And so what anybody that picks up a Bible needs to probably do is have a real healthy appreciation for scholars who say, I've done my very best work to say this is as close as the original as I can get. I think we can't be too combative to people's intent saying, I'm doing my best to give you the original New Testament. And most Bibles, quite frankly, are produced under that intent to say, okay, I know there's 27 variants for this verse, and I've weighed all of them, where they come from, why they might have happened, I've tried to understand the cause. And then I'm going to say, this is the original here. And in my New Testament translation, I've tried to note those and tell people where I've made decisions that could affect the meaning. But in a real sense, the story of Jesus is secure. There are changes in verses and chapters, but it's not like we lose the essential story. You mentioned reliability, which comes down to authority. If you think it's the Word of God, it needs to be a witness to these things, which the Gospels, we don't even know for sure who wrote those. If you're looking at reliability as being the exact words of the official author, that's one thing. If you're looking at it as this is basically what Christians were talking about, do you feel like it fares better? I do. I think if we want 
to get to the level where we argue the exact meaning of a specific verse, I don't think the New Testament can do well in bearing that burden. I think we can arguably have a lot of confidence in the idea that it presents the essence of the story and the meaning of that story to Jesus's early followers. And why I don't use the word Jesus's early apostles, they're not all apostles in the New Testament, and we're not even sure that all the books were written under apostolic leadership or guidance. These are believers. They're having an experience with Jesus in faith, and they're sharing that. And I think scribes come at it the same way. Scribes try to do their best to copy, but they make errors. And some are intentional, but a lot are just inadvertent. You mentioned that when you were teaching New Testament classes, your students struggled over the words. I'm assuming they were reading the King James Version. Can you tell me a little bit of background about how we got the King James Version? Yeah, kind of end of the 16th century, beginning of the 17th century, um, there becomes this, this need, I think, to replace the Bishop's Bible. There's some nuanced political arguments why the church needs to replace the Bishop's Bible. But in doing that, there's this age of manuscripts coming aware, and there, there's now a Greek New Testament out there that is based on eight or nine Greek New Testament manuscripts that are relatively poor, but that's an exciting moment in the 17th century. And scholars, and a lot of times we, we shade this line, but these are academics trained in Greek and Hebrew who sit down with the best available texts, and they produce the King James Version. And they do something, I think, that a lot of people don't realize is the King James Version is already archaic English and the day it hits the press. It already sounds 100 years old. And it's panned in the press. It does pretty poorly right out of the gate. People are saying, nobody talks like that anymore. And uh, it grabs a real foothold and takes off. So you've decided to make a study Bible. There are plenty of great study Bibles out there. Personally, I use the NRSV. Great Bible. Why a distinctively LDS version? Great question. And there are wonderful Bibles out there. The NIV is a good one. The NRSV is a good one. The CEB is great. And there are lots of them. The challenge is, is that the notes of those Bibles, which are also excellent, are targeted towards certain audiences, whether a faith community or whatnot. And I know there's not one that targets the LDS scripture canon, that tries to recover the inner text between the Book of Mormon, the way the Doctrine and Covenants uses these texts, the way the Pearl of Great Price and other texts have the language of the Bible in them. And I think there's also this other question. Latter-day Saints are very keen on the language of authority, ordination, blessings, priesthood. And I wanted to be sensitive to that. I wanted to be aware and help recover that, to help people see where the office of deacon comes from. And not strangely, but fascinatingly, the office of deacon originates in the female roles of women in the church. She is a deacon. She serves in that capacity. And later, male deacons will model their service off that. And I've tried to, in the notes, call attention to that. Here's the first usage of the verb to be a deacon. Here's the first noun. And so I felt that Latter-day Saints would benefit by that. But as far as there being good study Bibles, there are, absolutely. Do you feel like 
those who might be hesitant to look at a study Bible like the NRSV might be more comfortable if they had familiar things in it, like, oh, that's a reference in the Book of Mormon. I see familiarity here. I feel more comfortable. I sure hope so. I've given this little section in each introduction that said LDS connections, and of course they're not exhaustive, but I've tried to draw out attention. Why do Latter-day Saints want to read 1 Corinthians? Why does it matter? I hope to have kind of lessened that sense of being uncomfortable or afraid or keeping it at a distance. I've tried to shorten that gap a bit. You're a scholar of the Greek language and you translated from the Greek. You mentioned there's about 5,300 manuscripts in Greek of parts of the New Testament. Obviously, you didn't go to the postage stamp for your translation. Tell us about the textual basis for your translation. Today, I think probably most major Bibles are based on what's called the Nestle Aland 28th edition of the Greek New Testament. And what it is, is there's a Bible society that collates all of these manuscripts or or the majority of the good ones, and then they put forward a Greek New Testament with all the variants at the bottom of the page, and I use that as my text. And I think NRSV, all of those, will use a version, 25th, 26th edition. And so that's the heart and soul of my text. The one challenge will be, and this will be with every Bible, is the NA28 double brackets some passages that are questionable. We don't 100% know, for example, that Luke 22 verses 43 and 44 are part of the text, and I made those calls. I've alerted readers in the notes that when NA28 has a question, I've tried to decide. And I've also been transparent to say, here's so you know, these verses are in question. And the woman taken in adultery, for example, There's a note that explains this is a questionable story. I chose to include it and try to be obvious why I did so. When I was reading your introduction, you mentioned that this manuscript was unbiased that you were using. And I said to myself, how do you know it's unbiased? Because it presents both sides of every single textual problem. It does its very best to say, here's what we've restored. But right here on the page, right at the bottom, here are all the witnesses so that you as a reader, me as a translator and scholar, know, hey, I don't like the way you decided it. I think this is more original. And I have the information right there. When you pick up most English Bibles, all of those decisions have been made and you have no idea where they've been made at. And so that's what a good study Bible should help you recover. What were some of the guiding principles you used when translating? I wanted to get away from the KJV's literalness so that you could line up the Greek text in the English, and so the first Greek word is translated as the first English word, second word, etc. Those are really clunky. Uh, There was a time and a place where literal word order, everything needed to be restored. And I tried to emphasize meaning. That was a general guiding principle. Readability. I've read the translation out loud intentionally in one of my review processes so that I could capture some of the original New Testament kind of aura, if you will. We think many New Testament texts were read out loud to the community, and I wanted to make sure it's very readable. 
And I tried very hard to capture the differences in style in the different letters. When you translate them from Greek, it is absolutely clear that, for example, the person who wrote the book of Revelation did not write the Gospel of John. Those are two very different authors. They might both be named John, but I tried to capture those differences in, in the way authors speak. But I would say overall, readability and accessibility were the kind of pillars of what I was trying to do. You encouraged readers to use your study Bible next to the KJV, which at first I thought to myself, why? Until I did it. It's actually really great because as you're reading them side by side, in your head pops, oh, that makes sense now. What was confusing to me before? And I think for the Latter-day Saint, it makes sense for another reason. Every Latter-day Saint who opens this text has inspiration moments that are part of their history. And they was inspired when they were reading John chapter 7. And I want them now to bring that with them and see what also the text can now say to them. It's a way of bringing their past, their kind of spiritual and uh, religious past. Throughout this interview, we're going to do just what you suggested. We're going to compare your translation to the King James Version. So let's do our first one. Great. It's Matthew 6, 27. The King James Version says, Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? The Tom Weymouth Version says, Who is able to add one measure to his height by worrying? That alone helped me. But then I went to the note. A cubit, or one measure, is the length from the end of the middle finger to the elbow, and in this context, the directive to not worry about adding to one's overall height can also be interpreted to mean worrying about adding an hour to one's lifespan. That really changes the meaning of that verse. Yeah, and when you come at it as a translator, one of the nice things we can do today is commentators and others have dug up the way this particular phrase or these words are used in other contexts. And a lot of the other contexts suggest that the best thing is somebody worrying about extending their life. That's really at the heart and soul of these words. And when you back off for a minute and ask, how could a person add to one's height? I surely can't, and I think none of us can, but we sure as heck can wonder about how could I live longer? And that, that seems to be what Jesus was intending. Stop worrying about prolonging life. Live for here. Live for now. That's great advice. On the same page, I noticed something else with my eye. Because, you know, these are familiar verses that you've always wondered about. This is Matthew 7, verse 3. Why do you look at the splinter in the eye of your brother or sister and do not consider the log in your own eyes? KJV is moat and beam. And I always have to look up moat every single time. In fact, when I was comparing them, I had to look up moat again. At first I said, well, that's not a direct substitution. But then I thought, okay, number one, we're not going to super analyze every word. And number two, I don't know what the Greek says. So I don't know who, because moat is a lot smaller than splinter if the KJV was just amplifying the comparison or what was going on there. 
I can't speak to the intent of the KJV, but the word that is translated as splinter and can be also speck, if you will, comes from, it appears, the, the artisan class and people working with their hands in stone and wood and having something happen with their hands that are hurt by these things. Today, that's a fragment of wood, that's a fragment of stone embedding in your hand, and so I tried to use splinter as a familiar sense. This is something you have to dig out after, and uh, that's what he's trying to say. Really fascinating that he's familiar with this term from the artisan class, himself being part of it. So the familiar sense, you know how when you go out to work and you pick up a splinter in your hand, get that out first before you worry about the log. Was there a particular verse or passage that you were excited to render in your version? I would say there were some that I was terrified in how to handle. Oh, I bet. Um, I was really worried one would come across as antagonistic. In John chapter 5, verse 29, I believe it's verse 29, top of my head, Jesus says in the King James Version, search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And many, many people have misread that verse to believe Jesus is saying, search the scriptures. And so that can become this great lesson, search the scriptures, Jesus told us to. Uh, He's not saying that. And I knew that going into this. Jesus is saying, you search the scriptures because you think they'll save you. And that's a very different reading. He's challenging them, saying, you won't listen to living oracles You'll only listen to the written. And so as I get to John 5, I know even the evening I did it, I remember very well saying, what am I going to do with this? I'm not trying to overturn ideas. I just want to capture this. The other one that's really hard that I knew was coming up and just horrifying how to deal with, the Gospel of Mark almost certainly ends with verse 8, chapter 16, verse 8, and the last three words, they went away afraid. And then there's these other verses that we're so familiar with that were added because it looks like scribes were dissatisfied with them leaving the tomb afraid. And and again, not wanting to kind of ruffle feathers, I have to be honest to the text and I have to try to say, okay, here's how these verses came. They're still very meaningful. They're very ancient, but they're probably not original. And so I had a lot of those moments, probably the most excited for one to just set the record straight, is strain at gnats. And uh, when Jesus says that in the Gospel of Matthew, I always ask my students, what do you think that means? And they have no idea. Straining at gnats is like grabbing gnats out of the air with your mouth or something. And what he's talking about is straining drinks prior to drinking them so you don't drink insects. So they're pouring it through like a cheesecloth or a cloth. And so it was nice to be able to fix that one so that people aren't, you know, straining at gnats, if you will. Oh, that's great. You mentioned that you didn't want to be controversial. And I've noticed as I've read through the New Testament and your study elements, you're very middle of the road. You give both sides of the argument, but you don't always weigh in on it. So we've talked about notes. What other kind of helps have you put in this study Bible? Let me talk just briefly about trying to take the middle of the road. 
I went down a process here where people used to lose their life for translating this. It's, it weighs a lot on a translator. Translators don't typically do well who deal with the Bible, and they oftentimes are vilified. And so I, I come at this tradition thinking, oh my goodness, this could ruin me and cause a lot of upset. So I try to be fair. I try to be open about that. And that sense of middle of the road. Now to the question of helps. Wonderfully that we live in the computer age today. Uh, we have a program here on campus where we can plug in the whole text of the Book of Mormon and we can plug in the whole text of the New Testament King James Version and tell us every single phrase where three words are similar in sequence. And I did that. And I spent months and months going through thousands of parallels. And I believe that that Bible has all of them. That where the New Testament language appears in the Book of Mormon. And I've tried to categorize it. Is this strong enough to be an echo? Did Joseph have that language in part of his vocabulary and it comes out in the Book of Mormon, etc.? So that's there. I've also tried to alert the reader the New Testament is used heavily in the Doctrine and Covenants and interpreted. And so I've told readers this verse is interpreted in the Doctrine and Covenants. And I think those will be great helps. And then the historical introductions. I hope they're balanced and give a, a fair overview of what this book is they're reading. The notes do favor intertextuality. You do use those terms, quote, allusion, and echo that are commonly used in biblical criticism. The use of the terms kind of presupposes that the New Testament is the antecedent text for the Book of Mormon, which raises questions of how can this be in a lot of our minds. Why do you think it's important to move beyond this un? answered question in our study. As a scholar of the New Testament, I've been at this for over 20 years. A lot of scholars, myself included, want to find the meaning of the New Testament or the Old in the context in which it happened. We want to recover for you Paul's life in Corinth, exactly when it happened, the dispute that led to this. And in recovering that historical moment, we've now explained the text. And then all interpretation can bear that burden. And there's another way to be a scholar. There's a lot of ways to be a scholar, but there's another way in text. The greatest meaning of any scriptural text, in my opinion, arises from its intertextual history of how other texts have used it, how it uses other texts. It is fascinating, and if readers will spend the time just make a study sometime of how Jesus used the Old Testament. He changes it, he adapts it, he alters words, he adds words, he quotes some things verbatim. And it's fascinating to watch Jesus as a scripture user. And I'm not trying to enter a debate and say that the Book of Mormon plagiarizes the New Testament. But for heaven's sakes, the language of the New Testament is in the Book of Mormon. We need to acknowledge that. And that might come through Joseph, who that's his vocabulary. He's a 19th century American reading the KJV. That's the way he speaks. And in recovering that, we can now see that when Nephi wants to talk about grace, for example, 2 Nephi 25, or Jacob wants to talk about grace, and they'd use 1 Corinthians, we should be alerted to that. We should understand how they're engaging that and get over the kind of 
is this a quote or is this an illusion or is this an echo? And ask, how is that vocabulary being altered because Nephi's trying to say something and Joseph's trying to capture what Nephi's saying and his best language is the KJV. To me, it's vastly important to recover those intertextual foundations. It's not only fascinating, it's incredibly helpful. The majority of notes that you have in your study Bible are not one word. They're explanatory. They talk about how in the Book of Mormon it's in this passage and how it relates. I think that people will really increase the depth of their study, all three books, because the Book of Mormon screams to be a companion of the New Testament. Absolutely, and I'm fascinated when I'm reading about Enos and his prayer and finding where those intertextual echoes come from. To me, that really opens up a different avenue in Scripture. Let's do another comparison. Absolutely. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.2, the same was in the beginning with God. Tom Weymouth, thus he was in the beginning with God. Quite a bit different. And then we get lots of help in the note, and it's very long. I won't read it. I'll just have you explain that to us. Yeah, and this is partly me. This is probably my, if you will, my heaviest moments in the translation. I wrote my dissertation on those verses, and they're beautiful in the King James. I don't think any translation has yet kind of captured the poetics of it, although we've all tried. I think if I were not translating it for readability, I would want to say to the reader that what the Greek appears to be doing is saying that God is sitting on his throne and someone holds a mirror to God's face. And when God looks in that mirror, God sees the logos. He sees his word. And I don't know how you capture that in words, but it's declarative. This is how the beginning happened. I mean, those are big words to say, this is the moment it all started. God looked in a mirror and saw his word. And that word then becomes Jesus Christ as the opening verses do. So I'm trying to capture, if you will, the power of and the simplicity. It's Genesis 1-1 being quoted. It has allusions to creation, but there's a new moment. And the author knows what he's doing. I mean, he knows this isn't just happenstance when he starts NRK Hologos. It's in the beginning. That's the almost the exact phrase from Genesis. And so he's saying, let's start anew. It's a powerful moment. I think I could talk about that for hours, but the other thing I would want to add is it's a hymn. This is sung. People would sing it antiphonally. Um, You have in the first 18 verses the fragments of this hymn, and those opening words are part of that hymn. And it's so interesting. We have these majestic words that everybody who's read the New Testament knows And then we get to the reliability question again, because they were undoubtedly added, not by the original author, but as you said, it has plenty of authority on a theological basis. Absolutely. And strangely, in several cases, and this being one of them, these words probably predate the author by a significant amount of time. So he's quoting somebody we think, my my argument originally was that he quoted someone from one of the Baptists, John the Baptist's uh, circle. And these words are 
ancient, but yeah, they've, they've been incorporated and now commented upon in the gospel. There was no reason for you to write this translation in a vacuum. What kind of reference books did you use? I made myself avail of almost everything I could get my hands on. I have extensive commentaries that I used. Um, I used the Hermeneia commentaries, the, the Anchor Bible series. I used the ICC commentary. And why I say that, I want to be transparent. I used available sources. My intent was not to say, I am so good, I can do this without help. I want to know what other people are saying. How are they feeling about this? How are they understanding it? I've compared my translation to the RSV. I've compared it to the NIV and then the NRSV and read them side by side. That was one of my check mechanisms to see how we compare. And... um, I use standard language tools, Greek lexica as well, so that there's a lot of words that have a a lot of range of meaning, and choosing that one becomes hard. I also tried to be respectful of the KJV. I didn't want to intentionally be combative to it and its textual history. What was your methodology for writing notes? Because as I, you told us a little bit about doing the three-word matching. Yes. But that only works when you're matching words. Yeah. Was there something else you did? I mean, because I know you probably had the New Testament memorized, but maybe not the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine of Covenants. Yeah, it's a lot of work. So I, I have several layers of notes. I read it once for maps. What would a reader want to see with maps? And I believe there's 22 maps that made the cut. I spent quite a bit of time, better part of a year, with all parallels that I could generate computer-wise between modern scripture and ancient. There's fortunately handbooks available that recover all of the Old Testament in the New, and I sat down and read all of those and said, these are the ones I think would be meaningful. I asked myself what a person unfamiliar with Greek would want to know in Greek, and what words should I comment on, and I made those lists as well. And I tried to avoid intentionally doctrinal notes. I don't want people to view this as a commentary. Of course, I'm commenting a lot on the text, but I'm not trying to replace others who are talking about the meaning of the text in our modern world, where they're giving a sermon. This is what I personally get out of this. I want someone to come to this, what does the New Testament say here? And I hope I've brought all the helps available to that. Bunny, you ask about trusting my computer. I sat down after I'd finished the whole thing and read the Book of Mormon. Probably one of the most enlightening times I've ever read the Book of Mormon. And I just asked, is there anything on this page that tells me something about the New? And there's notes in there that aren't quotes of the New Testament or references or allusions. They're just simply talking about similar ideas or concepts. And I thought, wow, I had an aha moment. And those are there as well in the notes. Fantastic. Okay, let's go to the book of Hebrews. We're not going to compare that side by side with the KJV. But I just want to talk about the introduction that you do before each book. So walk us through your introduction for the book of Hebrews. So let me say up front as a scholar, I'm fascinated that Latter-day Saints and others have so much invested in who wrote this book. I don't have as much invested. It's a wonderful epistle. It's a wonderful text. So in my 
introduction, I weigh in on that. And I weigh in and I will say on the podcast, I don't think there's any way Paul wrote this. The person who wrote Hebrews did not write 1 Corinthians. A full stop. Does that change its meaning? I don't know. So let me, now having said that, I come to the text that way. I'm thinking, how am I going to bring this out? So I want to alert readers that my opinion is at play, but there is evidence that early Christians thought Paul did write it, and they didn't. So I want to be fair. I want to give you this kind of historical overview that if you feel strongly that Paul wrote it, there is some evidence for it. And if you feel strongly that he didn't, there's some evidence for that as well. I like this point you made. You give the argument, then you say, in other words, if Paul did not write Hebrews, then somehow the message of the epistle is diminished or even of no value, which you just told us you you don't buy that argument. Not at all. I don't know why if a early Christian named Fred, I don't think there are lots of Freds, but wrote this, why that, I'm still moved by it. I'm moved when I translate it. I'm moved when I talk about it. I'm not sure why Paul's name needs to be the person that does that for me. It's wonderfully written. It's complex. It's Greek is phenomenal. Uh, This is a very intelligent author. I wish I knew who it was. I would love to say that, but I don't know. It's nothing else is like it in the New Testament. And there's so many ties to LDS theology and doctrine from the Hebrews. Yes. Yes, and, and so that brings one other part of the introduction. I want to recover for the reader how Latter-day Saints can engage where this epistle came from. It, it's really about the temple. It's really about Jesus now as the voice of God and speaking to us and delivering this message of salvation. And so I want to cue readers in. When you read the very first words, God, who at different times and in various places has spoken to us, I want you to know, what what should I be seeing in this? Of course, there's lots of other things, but I've tried to give you some helps and hints at that. One thing you added was with every book outside the first four Gospels, you have a section called Purpose of Writing, probably because for the first four Gospels, it would be the same to declare that Jesus right. was the Christ. We need to put it back into context. These were not written in a vacuum. They were written for a specific reason in a specific time for a specific purpose. Absolutely. And the reader will find a lot of information trying to place things in Paul's life, in his letters, in those purpose. I tell you, this appears to be a second letter, late second letter, early third mission, early second mission letter. And here's what was going on in Paul's life. Paul was angry when he wrote the opening lines of Galatians. There is no doubt. And I want you people to know that because he tells a really bad joke there. And it's harsh and it's mean. And I I even say in the notes, this is Paul at his very rudest. And I'm not going to pull any punches. That's what he did. Paul is really upset. He's frustrated with some events. And he wants to tell his readers about that. I noticed that many of the footnotes in your book relate to variant readings among different New Testament manuscripts. Why is that kind of information helpful in studying the New Testament? One, it goes back to something we really started at at the beginning. If you have a full view of what's really in question in the New Testament, 
I think most readers, I can't predict this, but I think most readers will come away with saying, is that all that's in question here? That's the big fight here. That's the uncertainty. And so in being honest, I think I pull back this veil of uncertainty and say, look for yourself. Here's the way I translated it. And in this note, here's the other way scribes wrote it. And you're going to see that the scribe who made an error or changed the text didn't do damage to it. They're trying to find meaning in most cases. They're trying to say, I don't quite get what this means. Let me alter the text here because this is what I think it means. And you're going to find faithful scribes for the most part. And then, of course, there's our scribes that really tinker with the Bible. But for the most part, it's these are people who believe it. They're respectful of it. I love that because sometimes we hear the New Testament is not reliable. And that's because scholars want to get to the original, and it's just picky, picky things sometimes. Yeah, and sometimes we give the idea that it's like an onion, and we have to peel back all these layers to get back to the original, and, and the original is shocking, and I, I don't know that it's quite that shocking. How would you answer the criticism that most study Bibles are made by committee? You wrote this yourself. What are the possible benefits to a single author approach? And this is something I'm very sensitive about, and I would have loved to have had a committee. I would have loved to have done committee work because a committee work assures, uh, or mostly assures, that blunders are avoided. Uh, one of the great burdens of being the individual author and the person who's responsible for the translation and the notes and the maps and everything is there's no doubt I'm going to have made errors. And I hope that readers will be sensitive to the fact that in giving up that committee confidence, I've done one a couple of things. I think there's consistency in approach. This is always me. I've tried to recover the same narratives. I've kept a similar purpose from Matthew 1.1 to Revelation 22. I think that in doing that, you find a much more harmonious product, I hope. So there is good and there is bad in doing it. Committees do great work. They can bring a lot more man hours than I'm able to do. You won't have a voice in a committee production. You won't. Do you think your voice comes through? I do. You mentioned probably the moment where I think it comes through the most to the footnotes of John 1. They're strong. You'll see it in the notes. Uh, those people who know me and thing, other things I've published on, you'll see my interests come through. I'm, I'm very fascinated. I, it's a lifelong effort for me. And... I am a reader of the New Testament just like everybody else. I love that text, and I hope they'll see, hey, here's, here's a scholar who's trying to be respectful of the text, who's trying to help me, and I hope there's a level of trust there in that. You mentioned that you would have loved to have had a committee. Do you see your translation functioning as a bridge at all to the type of Bibles we use in the LDS community? I sure hope so. I've used fairly extensively some of the church's other modern translations, um, the Spanish, I've used the French, and the German just to a little bit. They're a lot better than our English Bible, particularly the Spanish is just phenomenal. The notes that they bring there, I am hugely impressed. And there's a sense of longing. Why can't we have that? Now, having said that, I don't view my translation in conversation with what the church is doing. I'm not trying to direct efforts. But I hope, I hope it will be exciting. I hope people will find a familiar voice. One thing 
I noticed as I was reading this translation is that it's a quick read. And you do not think of scriptures as being quick reads, but it's a quicker read than the Book of Mormon, just because it's conversational tone. Yeah, and I think one thing that does that, um, when we open a scripture text, we are so inclined to see on a page verse 1, separated from verse 2, separated from verse 3. And the New Testament's written in a paragraph or something we might more technically call pericope, which are short sense units. And a Greek New Testament text, one that I used, already divides it into pericope. I follow those mostly. And I've tried to minimize the verse numbers. You'll notice that they're superscripted. They're a smaller font. So that you read it the way the author's intended. Here's an idea. Here's an idea rather than verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. I find that really cumbersome. I kind of long for the Book of Mormon being back in its paragraph form, if you will. Your translation is available now on the shelves of Deseret Book or your online booksellers. How do you hope church members might use your book as we start the study of the New Testament this year in Gospel Doctrine class? I hope they'll read it. And I hope, and this is so hard for me, I've taught New Testament here almost 20 years at BYU, and I have invariably a student who walks into class, and they have the weight of the world on their shoulders, and they say something like, oh my gosh, I've got to read the New Testament. It's a drag, and it's just exuding from every pore that how terrible this text is. That breaks my heart. I want them to be excited about it. Like you said, the ease, I want to recover some of those things where people think, wow, this is a pretty fun text. There's some fun ideas in here. And And I don't think the KJV does a good job of that. I think KJV does a very good job of laying out a literal rendering, but cold, detached, intentional, like Matthew was intentionally writing the Gospel of Matthew. And I don't think they wrote like that. I think they wrote it to be consumed. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing your scholarship with us today, Tom. Hey, thanks, Laura, for having me. It's always a pleasure. Be sure to check out LDSPerspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.